Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Menopause is a transition to a new phase of life and begins when the menstrual cycle finishes. Although not a health problem, hormonal changes and other related factors may require medical intervention and lifestyle adjustments. My guest today is Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of Women's Primary Care in the Departments of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Medicine at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. She is also Chief Medical Officer at the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Dr. Singer will talk about physiological changes during menopause, what causes them, and how menopause is diagnosed. She'll also discuss signs and symptoms and treatment options for menopause and tips to help women manage this time of change in their lives. So welcome, Dr. Singer, and thank you for joining me today. Cheryl, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, I always like to start with some basics. So Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more. I mentioned it in my introduction, but explain to us what is menopause, why does it occur, and most importantly, is it a normal part of aging? Menopause, as you mentioned earlier, is the time that marks the end of a woman's menstrual cycles, essentially. And it's actually a diagnosis that we make retrospectively, meaning Menopause occurs after someone has not had a period for 12 months. So it's a look back because we don't always know exactly when that will occur, but you get a sense when women stop having the regular regular menstrual cycles. Um, It can happen in the 40s or 50s, but the average age of menopause in the US is 51. It is indeed a natural biological process and a normal part of aging, right? Every woman who lives long enough will experience menopause. And actually, if we think about the average age, as I just mentioned, being 51 in the US, and the average life expectancy for women being 81, most women will live up to a third of their lives in menopause or essentially in an estrogen deficient state. So why does it occur or what is it really? It's a natural process that occurs when the ovaries stop producing hormones namely estrogen. And it's the lack of estrogen that tends to lead to the typical symptoms we think of and that we can talk more about. And to that point, uh, Dr. Singer, is it possible that 
menopause could be triggered, say, by a surgical procedure, or are there other causes of maybe so-called induced menopause? What, what would you tell us? Anything that affects the production of estrogen by the ovaries um, can lead to menopause. So yes, you're right. There are other less perhaps natural ways that can occur. So a surgical procedure that includes removal of the ovaries. If a woman has a hysterectomy, removal of the uterus that also takes out the ovaries, that can lead to a surgically induced menopause. In certain cases, um, someone might take out just the ovaries because of uh, a cyst or a concern, or in certain women who may be predisposed to ovarian and breast cancer, again, removing the ovaries and their production of estrogen then could cause menopause. And there are different medications. One of the things that comes to mind um, often or first is chemotherapy used in different types of cancer treatments often will affect the ovaries and their production of hormones. There are other medications, um, what we call GnRH agonists and antagonists. We often use them in the setting perhaps of endometriosis treatment. So when women have pain due to endometriosis, um, they're now starting to be used in the treatment in some situations of fibroids, but those also can induce a chemical menopause. And then radiation that's directed at the pelvis, perhaps for different treatments uh, in terms of cancer, but if the ovaries are involved and affected, that can cause uh, an early or well, maybe early, but a menopause kind of situation as well. So you had mentioned already in terms of when it begins, but is there a term, I, I, as I was preparing these questions for you, I, I saw something called menopausal transition. Could you explain a little bit more what that means? Is there a certain time more specific uh, that it begins and how long does it last? It sounds like that's kind of the process, but I think we need to understand more what that means. Sure. I think it's helpful to talk about terminology. You'll hear it referred to either as menopause transition or as perimenopause. They really mean the same thing. And both of those terms refer to the period that begins with the first signs and symptoms of hormonal or endocrinologic change. Usually that's manifested by menstrual cycles becoming irregular. They may uh, come a little bit more frequently. Bleeding patterns may change. They may space out and women may skip months in terms of their periods. And there can be other associated symptoms as well. So it's when those first signs and symptoms start until the time frame during which uh, there's been no periods for a year and when we define the actual menopause. And so that's the perimenopause. And you, I'm glad you brought up about terms because I also saw there's the perimenopause, which sounds like you've described, then the actual menopause, and then the the postmenopause. Are those the three common terms that we usually hear? I think those are the three common terms. So perimenopause, that onset of those symptoms, average age in the U.S. is about 47 and a half. But keep in mind, this is extremely variable. And there is, you know, all of these things are sort of a bell-shaped curve, right? So women can fall anywhere along there. 
So those symptoms often start somewhere in the later 40s. Average age of menopause in the U.S. is 51. So roughly duration of those symptoms, that perimenopausal period may be three to four years, but again, can be variable. Menopause is 12 months after the last period. And then anything after that is considered postmenopause. So postmenopause can be quite a long time frame, depending on how long someone lives. Sounds like it. Yeah, I should mention that we talk about all of these symptoms, but about 10% of women don't actually experience perimenopause. And they have regular periods up until the time that their periods stop. They sort of stop abruptly. They never get another period again and may go through things, you know, without a lot of the other kinds of symptoms that we're going to focus on. Um, So again, this is a very individualized experience and there is no one thing that um, fits all, let's say. It's a great lead in because uh, you have already talked about the period stops, uh, the menstrual period stops. But I'd, I'd like to, or I'm sure listeners too would like to hear about other common signs and symptoms. And to that point, you, you've kind of alluded to it, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about do women, say, of different races or ethnicities uh, have other signs and symptoms? Does it vary? Um, with respect to who you're talking to? It sounds like it does, but perhaps you can explain more for us. I think those are great questions and very timely in a lot of ways. Let me start by just talking about some of the common symptoms. And I think if you mention the word menopausal symptoms to most people, what comes to mind are what we call vasomotor symptoms. So those are hot flashes, Right, which women will often describe as an intense sensation of warmth, usually in the upper body that lasts for a couple of minutes and then ends in a cold or sort of sweating sensation. Um, and we'll also hear women talk about night sweats. So similar types of symptoms, but that happen during the night, obviously can awaken women and contribute to poor sleep, right? Insomnia, sleep disturbances, if you're having multiple night sweats and wake up every time you get this intense sensation of warmth and then the cooling that happens afterwards. And if you have to change bed sheets or bed clothes, obviously that's not going to really promote good sleep. Other symptoms that women sometimes will experience can be headache, uh, palpitations. Um, Those again are caused by estrogen withdrawal. And those tend to happen early on because it's all of a sudden that decrease or the fluctuation in estrogen levels that causes those types of symptoms. Some of the other symptoms that women tend to experience now fall under a term or category that we call genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. I know that sounds like a mouthful. So what do I mean or what does that include? That can be vaginal dryness, right? Decreased lubrication that can lead to what we call dyspareunia or pain with intercourse. There can be vaginal itching and burning, urinary frequency, having to go to the bathroom more often, sometimes burning with urination or having to get there right away. And those symptoms tend to come a little bit later on. They can start early, but persist because they're caused by a reduction in estrogen that kind of stays around. So it doesn't get better over time because there still is that lack of estrogen. 
And then there are other things. Some women will complain of fatigue. They'll report differences in hair and skin changes. There may be some mood changes. We can talk more about that. Often that's related to other things as well. Think about when a woman goes through menopause. It's at midlife when there are often lots of social changes that are going on as well maybe changes in career, people become empty nesters. So I, there's a lot of interplay between different factors that can affect the way one experiences these symptoms. And that maybe leads us into that last question you asked me about racial differences. There've been a number of studies over the years that have looked at differences in the way women of different races or ethnic backgrounds experience menopause. Probably the one that is quoted the most is what we call SWAN. It's the study of women's health across the nation. And this is something that is ongoing. Um, the investigators have been studying white, black, Hispanic, Japanese, and Chinese women in seven cities for more than two decades. And they have found some differences, which I'll mention, but then I want to put it in context. So they have found that black women and Hispanic women tend to experience menopause a couple of years early or that onset of perimenopause than white women do. They've also seen that black women experience more hot flashes and night sweats and greater severity of those symptoms than white women. And that perhaps they also have the longest duration of symptoms. But I think we have to think about this in a larger context. So when we think about the differences among women in this menopausal transition and how they experience symptoms, we have to take into account factors like hormone levels, financial strain, overall health, whether or not a woman smokes, whether or not she exercises, and other um, things that they might face in life. Like there have been um, theories that obviously stress in whatever way can affect health. We certainly know that and might affect the way that women experience menopausal symptoms too. And if a woman is facing chronic stress from things like discrimination or financial hardships, that may have a play or a role in how she experiences menopause. So I know that was a really long-winded answer, but I think it speaks to the fact that there's not a simple or easy, this is absolutely the way it is. There's so many things that come into play. It's, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all kind of, uh, of situation, and that's obviously very uh, apparent. You've now mentioned about the, the symptoms, the signs and the symptoms. I was also wondering if there are so-called complications of menopause. Are there, uh, again, situations that women, as they are approaching or are already in man menopause, should be concerned about? That's a great question. And I, I guess I don't tend to think about it in terms of complications in the way we use that traditional sense of the word. but but we could, we could talk about complications. What it's really related to is thinking about other organ systems in which estrogen plays a role, and there are many, but some of the obvious ones, estrogen, for instance, is good for the bones, right? It's protective when it comes to bone health. So if you now lose the protective effects of estrogen, 
over time and as we age, there's an increased risk for osteoporosis and an increased risk for osteoporosis-related fractures. Indeed, in the five to seven years following menopause, a woman can lose up to 20% of her bone density. So I guess you could call that a complication. Maybe your word is, is really quite you know, on target. Same thing if we think about the cardiovascular system, right? Estrogen is protective from a heart and other vascular um, disease perspective. It helps to uh, improve cholesterol levels. So again, when you have declines in estrogen levels over a longer period of time, we tend to see higher cholesterol levels and increased risks of cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke. That's why in many respects, women lag about 10 years behind men in terms of incidence of heart disease because of those protective effects of estrogen until the time that we start to lose it. Same for those genitourinary syndrome of menopause symptoms we talked about, those continue over time. And then there may be um, effects on cognition, so cognitive changes, possible dementia as women age. Um, those at least highlight a few of the major complications that we would tend to think about. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to turn a little bit to the actual diagnosis. Uh, one question I had uh, refers to a menopause clinician, and I was wondering if that is part of what you are, or is there a special category for a health provider? Uh, so tell us a little bit more about a menopause clinician and where do they usually practice? I think the best way to think about a menopause clinician is a provider who has a special interest uh, in menopause and sometimes special education and certification as well. So the North American Menopause Society has a program um, that can lead to certification, what we call a certified menopause practitioner. And you'll sometimes see the NCMP initials after uh, some providers if they have gone through the testing process to sort of document a certain level of knowledge. But there are people who can achieve that through taking different courses um, and through long-term practice with a focus on menopause, even without that actual certification. Pra menopause practitioners um, exist in many different places. Uh, I don't think they are you know, relegated to any one area in terms of major medical centers or private offices or practices. It really can be anywhere but it's somebody who often has a focus on women's health, particularly midlife women's health. If one is interested in finding a, an identified practitioner and some of those who are certified, the NAMS website, the North American Menopause website, which is actually menopause.org, has a list of providers there. Um, I think what's unfortunate is that not everyone is interested in or focuses on menopause. And because this is something that if women live long enough, as we mentioned earlier, is inevitable, if you are a provider who sees women, you ought to know something about menopause, right? Because at some point, uh, a woman in your practice is going to go through menopause. And so increasing education more broadly um, but making sure that there are people who exist who have a special interest and are well-versed is, is really important. 
Well, and that's that's a good lead-in to, obviously, you are uh, dealing with women's health all the time. So I'd like to hear more about how, in this case, you, or, but it could be any healthcare provider, actually diagnoses menopause, given all the things that you've told us already about difference in signs and symptoms and when it occurs. And then that said, is there always treatment? Maybe, maybe not. How do you then decide what the right treatment for menopause might be, or even if it's necessary? What, what is that process? Explain that to us. That the second part of that is sort of a loaded question. So let's start with the first. How do we diagnose it? Because before we treat it, we need to diagnose it, right? Indeed. Um, I, I I think the simplest answer is that it really is a clinical diagnosis, meaning we make that diagnosis based on a patient's symptoms and signs. And obviously, once somebody hasn't had a period for a year, it's easy to make that diagnosis, but you often get the sense earlier on if a woman of the right age range, uh, we can talk about, you know, sometimes women reach menopause much earlier, so age is not the end all and be all, but someone in that right time of life comes in with changes in their menstrual cycle or skipping months or irregular periods, perhaps some of the vasomotor symptoms that I mentioned, um, it's really looking at that person and thinking clinically what makes the most sense. Sometimes making sure or ruling out other contribution from other things, um, just throwing out one example. If someone has a problem with their thyroid and has an underactive thyroid, that can affect the menstrual cycle. That might cause some fatigue might cause some temperature intolerance. So if things aren't fitting into the picture you think, sometimes we will make sure there's not another process going on. But usually it's pretty obvious in terms of this is the right setting in which this certainly could be the case. With that said, um, I, I think this brings up another question. People always say, well, can you test my hormones? And there isn't really a pathognomonic test or lab test that tells us somebody is menopausal. Because, especially in that perimenopausal time frame, the production of estrogen from the ovaries can fluctuate and vary. The lab test that we might use to look at hormone levels or how the pituitary and the ovaries are functioning, those levels will fluctuate too. So a lab test at one particular time might not really tell you where in the process someone is. So in most cases, we don't use lab tests. We use our clinical judgment and what we're seeing to make that diagnosis. The second part of your question with treatment, and I imagine we'll talk a little bit more specifically uh, about what treatments might look at, but if we think of the broad concept of treatment, it's really based on treating symptoms and a woman's symptomatology, her goals and desires, right? What is she looking for? How bothersome are the symptoms? How is it affecting life overall? What does she want to accomplish? And you have to do that in the context of the rest of her medical history. So are there other medical problems that would be a contraindication to using a certain therapy, meaning we couldn't do that? Or are there other medical problems that might also be helped? For instance, bone health. 
where using a particular therapy might not only treat her symptoms, but also improve bone health. So it's really looking at the total picture and then having the patient and provider work together to come up with a treatment strategy or a therapy which might involve medication or not um, that's best for her. Okay, well, in the second half, we're going to talk about some of those treatment therapies, but right now we're going to take a short break. First of all, uh, remind listeners that we are talking with Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of Women's Primary Care at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, and you're listening to WERA LP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of Women's Primary Care at the Departments of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Medicine at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And in the first half, we were talking generally about the types of treatments that are available for menopause. But now we're going to get into some specifics. And I think probably, Dr. Singer, the most important or the one we hear most about, I'm not sure if it's the most important, you could tell us that, is hormone therapy. So what is hormone therapy and what are the issues that should be considered before using hormone therapy? I remember in years past, there were some controversies. So I'm... We're eager to hear what you have to say in terms of hormone therapy. Yeah, this is in and of itself is a huge or could be a huge topic. So I will try to summarize and please feel free to ask questions um, that I haven't sort of answered in a, a brief overview. But hormones, essentially estrogen, really remains the most effective treatment for menopausal symptoms because you are giving what the ovaries are no longer producing and it works very well for, for symptoms. So from an efficacy standpoint, there really isn't much in the way of concern. We know that it works, and we can talk a little bit more about some of the other beneficial, extra, uh, you know, symptomatic um, things that it can do as well. Um, but every medication has potential side effects, and there have been some potential risks described that, most data that we have comes from the Women's Health Initiative, right? And I guess I might as well start there because that's usually what people think about. This was a randomized clinical trial of more than 16,000 women between the ages of 50 and 79. And it was originally designed to test whether taking estrogen, either alone in women who don't have a uterus, or in combination with a progesterone in women who do have a uterus, um, could help women prevent heart disease, stroke, and cognitive changes. So it actually wasn't designed to look at symptom relief. We knew that estrogen worked for that. But the question was, what other effects did it have on the body? And um, 
you know, the, the cut, to cut to the chase in terms of the results, in 2002, what was seen is that women who were assigned to take hormones, particularly in the combination group, had a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and breast cancer than women who got placebo. And so all of a sudden, I, I remember exactly where I was that day because the phone started ringing off the hook, right, with patients calling saying, what do I do? Do I just stop my hormones? What does this mean? And although that was the answer that ended up in the news, the answers weren't quite so simple because it depended, the outcomes depended on a lot of things. How old were the women when they started taking the hormones? Uh, what about their, uh, some un other underlying baseline conditions? There were smokers who were in the study. There were women who were overweight and obese. So we were kind of left with this conundrum about how do we talk to people about the benefits and risks of using estrogen or estrogen and progesterone in combination. Um, and that's, again, an important differentiator, right? If a woman has symptoms and does not have a uterus, she can take estrogen alone. If a woman has a uterus, in order to protect the lining of the uterus so that we don't end up with what we call endometrial hyperplasia or ultimately uterine cancer, one needs to either take estrogen in combination with a progesterone or with another medicine called basidoxaphene, which is an estrogen agonist antagonist. So I'm gonna just sort of stop for a second and then go back to talking about kind of this benefit risk balance. But I wanna make sure that that seemed clear and see Cheryl, if you have any questions based on that before I kind of go on. Well, I guess my question would be, is it still a viable treatment option that you are prescribing that for um, women now? I mean, is it back in, in your um, selection possibilities of for women or is it not? I, I guess that would be helpful because that would kind of determine whether you're using it now. I guess that's what I wanted to know. Um, so I, that that's a great uh, way for us to sort of talk about this. Um, I think we've sort of come almost full circle, right? Early on, estrogen was felt to be sort of the elixir of youth, and everyone, when they reached menopause, should get estrogen. That was going to keep people young, um, control symptoms, and take care of all of these other organ systems and problems. And then over time, and particularly with the release of the results from the Women's Health Initiative, at least early on, um, that changed. And then the pendulum swung completely in the other direction to estrogen being bad, okay, to use you know very simplistic terms, but creating perhaps more problems than good. And indeed, in the um, initial years following the release of the results from the Women's Health Initiative, you know, there was about an 80% decline in the use of hormone therapy. Many women stopped their hormones abruptly felt terrible afterwards, but it really took a lot of examining the data overall and all of the nuances um, that came with this information to bring us back to where we are now, which I would say is kind of in the middle, where um, it depends. But yes, estrogen and hormone therapy, so the combination, are definitely viable options for the right patient. 
So what it tells us is that we really need to individualize care, which is what we should be doing in medicine regardless of what disease we're treating. And this isn't a disease, I wanna be clear on that, right? Everybody, uh, all of us as women are going to become menopausal. Um, but certainly for women who are symptomatic, estrogen absolutely helps with symptoms and shorter term use of estrogen, um, you know, up to five or seven years for estrogen alone, um, probably the benefits outweigh the risks. And even longer term use may be okay. It really depends on the individual patient, her other either presence of or lack of other underlying medical conditions, and the age at which one starts therapy. So what was seen when you really looked through the data that came out of the Women's Health Initiative is this a, if a woman started hormones at the time of menopause, then the benefits seem to outweigh the risk. And indeed, the things that we worried about developing, cardiovascular disease in particular, breast cancer, other things, um, and all-cause mortality or potential increased death rates actually seem to be lower as compared to the placebo group. But if you start hormones later in life, that benefit does not seem to be there. This study was really meant to be a primary prevention study, meaning before people start to develop any of these diseases, right? Cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, stroke. If we start therapy early, can we prevent them? But the average age of women at entry into the study was 63. That's 12 years after the average age of menopause. So you have to keep in mind what the Women's Health Initiative can and can't tell us, right? Um, it doesn't tell us about what happens if you start hormones at the time of menopause. It also didn't study um, its effects on menopausal symptoms. So it doesn't tell us the benefits and risks of the treatment of menopause-related symptoms. And it only used one type of estrogen and progestin and one dose. So it doesn't really speak to the use of other doses, other formulations or regimens, the duration of use, the route of administration, whether you take a pill or wear a patch or use a spray or a cream. Um, so there's a lot of information that we gained, but I think there is a lot that really wasn't answered um, based on the design of this study. And it sounds like, as you were saying, the best thing is it's a very customized kind of decision depending on all of these variables. And um, so it's there, but not in the way it was before. And um, that's that's very helpful. I, I wanted to get into some of the other aspects of menopause as well. Like, for example, medic medications. Are, are medications prescribed to, to treat menopause symptoms? And are there side effects associated with uh, these medications? Is that a treatment of choice for you as well? You mean beyond estrogen? Uh, yes. Or Okay, because I do, again, just want to reiterate that estrogen is really going to be the most effective treatment, and it works very well, and many women do extremely well with it. Um, lots of types of preparations, routes of administration, ways to give it. So this is absolutely still one of our mainstays of therapy, and I want to be sure that everyone is clear on that. It just takes 
a discussion and an informed decision, again, to make sure what's right for everyone. There are other non-hormonal medications that have and can be used. I do have to say that the data for most of them um, is fairly scant. And so in terms of other approved medications, there is one FDA-approved non-hormonal medication. It is um, an antidepressant. Uh, paroxetine is the generic name. Um, it's used in, you know, it's used, it's an SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's actually used in a slightly smaller dose uh, for menopausal treatment, marketed and branded under a completely different name than for uh, use in depression and anxiety, but it's essentially the same compound. That was specifically studied and shown to reduce vasomotor symptoms, the hot flashes, the night sweats, um, and improve conditions for women. With that said, there are other antidepressants, so other SSRIs that are used, although we don't have specific data or approval you know, for their use, but they have been used. Um, there are other medications for, again, which there is some data, clonidine, gabapentin, although they are not FDA approved. And then there are clearly a number of other medications, and we can sort of talk about this um, maybe perhaps separately when we think about things that aren't prescribed, but over-the-counter remedies, herbal remedies, home preparations that women do use. Um, but if I had to make sort of one umbrella statement, I would say that there's sort of a paucity of data to exactly tell us how well they work and or how safe they are. Right. One of the things when we have a medication that has been studied and is ultimately FDA approved is we have information not only on efficacy, how well it works, but on the safety side. And that's the bigger concern when people use medications that aren't approved. If it works for them, great. It's really the safety piece and what we do or don't know that I think as a clinician is something I always think about when people want to try um, things that have may it may not have been well studied. So you actually were getting into the home remedies, and I didn't know if you wanted to say too much more because I wanted to also spend some time getting your feedback on how, and I'm sure women really want to hear this from you as to how to manage some of these symptoms and what you can do to kind of in terms of your lifestyle. So did you have anything else you wanted to say about home remedies or can we move on to how you start managing some of these symptoms that women have? Yeah, I think we can move on. I, I think, again, um, you know, if it was a trial just based on effectiveness, we could sort of do a study with an N, meaning, a, you know, the number of people in the study of one. And if something worked for an individual woman, well, then in that setting, that's what we're concerned about. And there is... Um, there have been shown in a number of studies that there tends to be a large placebo effect, meaning if people take action and are taking something and are doing something proactive, that can sometimes help the experience of some of these symptoms as well, whether it's the actual medication or their perception. Um, but I just want people to sort of think about that kind of safety aspect and always make sure if they are going to use over-the-counter or herbal preparations, that they talk to their healthcare provider to make sure there aren't interactions with other medications they may be on or other medical problems that they do have. 
Okay. Well, that's, that's very helpful. And uh, by the way, Dr. Singer, at some point, if, if it's worthwhile to give any information in terms of where people can contact uh, you or not necessarily you directly, but with uh, uh, Georgetown, MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, perhaps you can give it uh, if there's any resources that we can learn more about menopause. You can share that as well. So. Sure, we can do that at the end. I can give some websites as well as um, our group at, at Georgetown. Perfect, perfect. So let's talk about some of these symptoms. I think probably the thing that women would probably want to know most is what are the best ways to manage hot flashes? I don't know if there's a best way, perhaps. It depends on the patient and what works for them. But in addition to the medications and home remedies we've talked about, if we think about behavioral strategies, you know, there for managing menopause in general, there are a few, right? Eating a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy weight. Sounds like that would be the right answer for anything we're talking about, right? But it applies here too, so that's fine. Um, Regular exercise actually makes a difference. There have been studies that have shown that women who exercise tend to have perhaps less severe or fewer vasomotor symptoms than those who don't. Um, sleeping well, so good sleep hygiene, which I know you may say, well, you just told me I'm going to have all of these night sweats that are going to interrupt my sleep. How do I do that? But trying to have good sleep habits, and we can talk more about that if you'd like, can make a difference as well. Not smoking, um, avoiding certainly excessive alcohol, but alcohol, caffeine, and sometimes spicy foods can be triggers for hot flashes. So those are the reasons that we would suggest that people think about limiting them. Again, not everything is going to be a trigger in every woman, but you can try elimination. And if it doesn't make a difference, you know, you can go back to it. Um, keeping cool, so dressing in layers, especially at night, wearing either layers and or light or clothes that wick, that don't tend to hold the moisture if you do have a night sweat, sleeping in a cool room, having a fan, you know, being able to sort of adjust temperatures, um, consuming cold drinks. And then there is some data to show that certain relaxation techniques, probably the best data is with structured cognitive behavioral therapy, but trying other relaxation techniques, yoga, meditation, tai chi, deep breathing, all of those are things that may work for different individuals. I also, again, when I was researching for pre- preparation of these questions, there was a reference to weight gain in the stomach, which I thought was kind of interesting, and was wondering if you could talk a little bit more. It's 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 was called menopause belly fat, uh, and I was just curious as to is is that again obviously not everyone would experience that just as they don't in in other aspects of menopause but is that something that's that's pretty common or rare or what w- what would you tell us about that yeah unfortunately it's not rare and not all of it is related to menopause per se some of it is certainly related to menopause some of it truthfully is related to aging 
um, we see it in our male counterparts too. Um, weight tends to go to the areas we want it to go to least, which is the midsection. And in part, not just that we don't like the appearance, but that's the area where it tends to be the least healthy and can sort of lead to complications because you end up with fat around what we call the visceral organs or the organs that sit in the abdomen, um, as opposed to putting weight on sort of in the hips and the thighs. We may not like the way that looks either, but that tends to not be as unhealthy sort of from a physiologic standpoint. The, the important piece is that although most women gain weight as they age, those excess pounds are not inevitable. So we want to do the things that we can to minimize the weight gain that happens with menopause and at midlife. And a lot of that has to do with stepping up activity um, and focusing on diet. Uh, and so if I had to pick couple of, a couple of um, key things or phrases, and it's going to sound very similar to what I said before for managing symptoms, but, you know, move more, right? The more all physical activity counts. The more we move, the more calories we burn, the more muscle we build, because muscle burns calories more efficiently, uh, the, the better off one is. Eat less. I know that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but to maintain one's current weight, let alone lose excess pounds, you actually need to take in somewhat fewer calories. And there's some articles that estimate maybe about 200 fewer calories a day during your 50s than you did during your 30s and 40s, right? It's that old focus that people will say, well, I used to be able to do this, and then it would come off pretty easily. And all of a sudden, it doesn't come off quite so easily anymore. So healthy diets, um, I'm not sure we want to get into specific types of diets, but you know, reducing calories without skimping on nutrition, pay, paying attention to what you're eating, and also drinking, because there are a lot of calories that come from things like soft drinks, um, sugary beverages. You don't even have to eliminate the food. If you can get rid of them, that can make a difference. Checking your sweet habits. So few foods that can contribute to excess dietary sugar can obviously add calories. Um, limiting alcohol, not only because of the way it may help in symptoms, but alcohol has, has empty calories and adds ex, excess calories to the diet. Um, and, uh, you know, those are some of the key things that one can do is that the end-all and be-all, not necessarily trying to reduce stress, um, seeking help when you need it, finding things that you like to do. You know, there's no one size that fits all in terms of type of exercise, but those are some of the strategies we can employ to try to avoid that weight gain. One thing I also wanted to ask you, Dr. Singer, is about women communicating their personal needs during menopause. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about the physical aspects of what we can and should do, and, and you've really covered that very well. But I, I think that there's the mental uh, uh, feelings and, and the concerns and the depression and that, and especially now when we're also dealing with COVID. Is it important to to share that with, with you know a spouse or a partner what do you tell your patients about that? That's a great question, Cheryl. 
it, I think it's extremely important for women to share their concerns and what they're experiencing with a number of different people in their lives. And not only those close to them, so family, uh, partner, spouse, whomever that might be, um, as well as friends, wherever they feel that, you know, they have that support system built in and would want someone to know, but also with their healthcare providers. As practitioners, we should ask uh, if we have somebody, you know, between the ages of 40 or 45 and 60 in terms of symptoms and what's going on, but not all providers do. And it may not be intentional, right? I'm also a primary care provider. There are lots of things at an annual or periodic well person exam that I'm supposed to do and take care of and think of in terms of cancer screenings and reviewing habits. And so sometimes things fall off the list. I'm not saying that's right, but it's not intentional. So women need to be proactive about their health. And if they have concerns, they should not feel embarrassed or be reluctant to bring it up to their provider, because that will then help a provider hopefully focus on the questions at hand and address it. And if it's just knowledge seeking, what can I expect? What should I know? Or if one is having specific symptoms or concerns, I, I think we want to empower women to take that role and not feel um, that they can't discuss these things. And if you have a provider who's not willing to respond, then that needs to make you think about whether it's the right place um, for you to be, I think, because uh, we all need to listen to our patients. And if we can't or don't have the knowledge to give them or be able to help them with the answers that they need, that's okay, but then we need to refer them to somebody who can. So we need to make sure that people get the help that they need. And I guess to that point, in terms of feelings, I would be remiss if I didn't say about sexual pleasure. I mean, you mentioned earlier about some of the uh, of the symptoms that occur in connection with menopause, which may prevent that from happening. But in the, we don't have a lot of time left, but can you just mention about, is it is it possible to have sexual pleasure during and, and after menopause? So the quick answer is there is no age limit for sexual pleasure or orgasm or being a sexual uh, being, essentially. And I it's funny that I didn't mention that because I do a lot of sexual health in my practice. Um, there are changes that occur, as we talked about from a physiologic standpoint, that can sometimes lead to pain with intercourse that might make people more reluctant to engage. There can be changes in the innate desire, the way women experience desire on their own, but can still be responsive uh, to sexual cues. So yes, it is still possible to have sexual pleasure. And again, this is something that women shouldn't be embarrassed about um, asking or talking about. And if that's a concern, should find a provider who is able to and willing to address that with them. Okay. Well, then my final question is, you had mentioned you were going to provide the some best resources to learn more about menopause. What can you tell us? And also how uh, folks could get in touch at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. So two great resources or websites. One is the National Menopause Foundation. And the website is nationalmenopausefoundation.org, all one word, um, really focused on um, consumers and, and you know, the 
and women. Um, uh, second is the North American Menopause Society, which is uh, really designed for clinicians, but has wonderful patient and public resources as well. And their website is menopause.org. There are all kinds of videos, information sheets, um, really some great resources there too. Don't want to leave out American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, from a bone health perspective. Um, I always have to give a plug to the National Osteoporosis Foundation, uh, www.nof.org, because that is one of my passions. And then um, to look for a provider um, at MedStar Georgetown. Um, the Probably the best way is to uh, look at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Uh, that is where I can be found as well. Um, and my colleagues are uh, all listed on the website with their areas of interest too. Um, so those that gives some resources and some direction in terms of women seeking more information. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of the Women's Primary Care at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, be sure to check out our website. That's agingmattersonline.com. And at that site, you'll learn about all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, uh, in addition to Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify, which this program will be found on after uh, this broadcast. You can also subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter, and doing so will help you to get all the updates about new radio shows and the TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and you can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.